Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. If you were to ask the average English Catholic, do you belong to the Church of Benedict or the Church of Francis, they'd probably look at you as if you were mad and make the obvious point that, sadly, Benedict is dead. And if you were to explain that what you meant was that two different models of the Church are emerging, one shaped by the theology of Joseph Ratzinger and one by the impulses of Pope Francis, I think most ordinary Catholics would still look puzzled or maybe stifle a yawn. But just because in this country most Catholics don't notice the growing chasm between liberal and conservative Catholics doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You've got to remember that the division has always been less evident in England and Wales than on the continent or in America. And also that in this country we no longer have a Catholic press to speak of or worth reading, so it's difficult for Catholics to find out what's going on, even if they're interested. Also, and this is an important part of the picture, good luck with finding the average English Catholic these days. Most dioceses are understandably cagey, if not flagrantly dishonest, about post-pandemic mass attendance. We have to keep revising our estimates downwards. Maybe we're talking about half a million people going to church a week. In fact, this shrinking of the demographic base of ordinary Catholics is probably having the same effect here, albeit less dramatically, as it is in Europe and America. That is, that the most committed Catholics today belong to parts of the Church rather than to the whole. Only they don't see it that way. Fervently committed Catholics believe they represent the authentic Church and the Catholics they don't like are attempting to drag the Church in their own inauthentic sectarian direction. This ideological division between Conservatives and Liberals isn't confined to Catholicism or even Christianity. It's an aspect of secularisation that fractures many institutions pulled in different directions by culture wars powered by digital technology. People passionately committed to a particular vision, and there aren't actually that many of them in a shrinking Catholic church, tape to the internet to tear each other apart. But the viciousness of Catholic online warfare can't be explained simply in terms of the availability of slick but subversive means of communication. It's hugely influenced by what I would call one of the most spectacular, even tragic, accidents in the history of the church. The fact that a Pope who developed an exquisitely refined, beautifully constructed conservative model of 21st century Catholicism was succeeded by a Pope determined to replace that model with a much looser construction designed to allow the winds of change to blow through it, while incorporating a special door for slamming in the face of Catholics inspired by the previous Pope's hierarchical mystical vision of the Church. This is what I mean by the Church of Benedict and the Church of Francis. Now, I think most Catholic bishops around the world know that this polarisation is happening and they're not happy about it. They're naturally conflict-averse. They don't take liturgically or theologically distinctive positions on anything. They're committee men. And one thing Francis does have in common with his predecessor is that neither of them worked through committees. I think the situation is especially painful for them because... They didn't expect the pontificate of Francis to turn out this way. They were embarrassingly, naively enthusiastic about the first Argentinian pope when he was elected. They didn't expect that he would become such a divisive figure, calling a series of synods in which the most excruciatingly painful subjects were debated without any resolution. 
They didn't expect a series of arbitrary and sometimes sadistic sackings in the Curia, and they certainly didn't expect Francis to tear up Benedict's signature document as Pope, Samorum Pontificum, providing much wider availability of the traditional Latin mass while he was still alive, without any warning. Effectively, as bishops, they were ordered to punish traditionalists for crimes that were never spelt out. They suspected that the frail Pope Emeritus would be desperately hurt by this measure, and we now know from his former secretary, Archbishop Ganswein, that it was indeed a blow to his heart. And this was, to put it crudely, a very nasty thing for Francis to do to Benedict. But then there's nastiness everywhere you look in the Catholic Church these days, and I'm afraid it was on display at the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI. And as evidence of this, let me quote an unlikely source, Robert Mickens, former Vatican correspondent of the tablet and a veteran opponent of many of Ratzinger's policies. He said, talking of Francis, the Pope looked unpleasant throughout the liturgy and surprisingly, shockingly, some would say, he didn't attend the interment of Benedict's body in the crypt after the Mass. The Vatican didn't observe a single day of mourning or declare a public holiday, but merely gave its employees the option of attending the funeral. Some services and shops were closed only for the duration of the funeral, and then people were expected to be back to work. There are many of us who are never particularly enamoured of Joseph Ratzinger, but the man was the Bishop of Rome for nearly eight years, and for that alone he deserved better than this. When Mickens, of all people, makes such an observation, you know that the atmosphere in Rome must have turned really poisonous. But then let's not pretend that there isn't poison in Catholic conservative circles as well. God knows I've been responsible for spreading some of it over the years, for which I'm very sorry. But if you'll play along with my metaphor, because that's what it really is, of churches of Francis and Benedict for a bit, and remember that most Catholics don't consciously belong to either of them, let's try and find something positive to say about both of them. There are die-hard liberal Catholics, and don't tell me there aren't because I've met them, who devote a lot of their spare time to visiting the sick, bringing hope to some of the world's poorest people, and fighting genuine bigotry. Many of them attend masses that are celebrated reverently, albeit in what you might regard as an aesthetically unpleasing fashion. That doesn't make them 1970s clown masses. And why do young traditionalists feel the constant need to accuse them of the crime of growing old? Trust me, Traddies, it'll happen to you quickly enough. The great weakness of the liberal Catholic position, it seems to me, is that they don't have a model of the Catholic Church, a coherent one anyway, that isn't basically liberal Protestant. What we see in Germany and many other European countries are sparsely attended services that I'm not sure really do qualify as masses. They're overtly political, they break every rule in the book, being celebrated by women, for example, and they seem perfectly willing to detach themselves from the global Catholic Church if they don't get their way. Francis's decision to encourage these people, only to pull the rug from under them at the very last minute, reflects his very poor management of the Church as does Traditionis Custodis. And that's something of which the world's bishops are increasingly aware, and I think will influence the next conclave. In an attempt to discover a progressive but authentically Catholic vision of the Church, I turned to a book published in 2015 called The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis, 
by Gary Wills, who in his day was one of the greatest American journalists. Nobody wrote with greater perceptiveness about the Kennedy and Nixon administrations, and his writing was always informed by his profound theological knowledge. Nonetheless, this book doesn't do what it says on the tin. It doesn't spell out a future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis that, to put it crudely, in relaxing the rules, doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think the same question poses insuperable problems in different ways for liberal Anglicans and liberal Jews, for that matter. We're faced with a very familiar sociological dilemma. Once an organisation reduces both the costs and the benefits of belonging to it, why bother to join? But if, on the other hand, an organisation, or part of an organisation, increases both the costs and the benefits of joining, then numbers will grow. And that's what's been happening in traditional Catholicism, and that is what is attracting increasing numbers of young people to it. Now, it's true that the conservative wing of the Catholic Church is having its own problems with internal coherence at the moment, partly caused by a completely pointless civil war over integralism, a quasi-theocratic political project that I hope will soon die. And also there are inevitable disputes among lovers of the traditional Latin mass, many of whom are wondering where to go now that Pope Francis has shut the doors of their churches. I have no doubt, incidentally, that this Machiavellian Pope would like traditionalists to decamp to the Society of St Pius X. We don't know why he hates them so much, but he wants to get rid of them, and I don't think he particularly cares how it happens. But traditional Catholics do have one wonderful resource on which to draw. A model of the Church in these difficult times, which is not, incidentally, predicated on the exclusive use of the Tridentine Rite. Indeed, it was devised by a priest who, so far as I'm aware, hardly ever celebrated it after the Second Vatican Council. I'm referring to Joseph Ratzinger. Benedict's church, it seems to me, is less of a mirage than Francis's church of isolated, if well-funded, apparatchiks. And, and I know this won't go down well with some people, perhaps also less of a mirage than John Paul II's new evangelization, which I never thought was actually grounded in sociological reality. At the heart of Benedict's theology, we find the orientation of humanity towards God, reflected above all in the liturgy. And it was Benedict's extraordinary imagination and appreciation of beautiful liturgy that seems to have attracted so many young Catholics and young converts. And perhaps that isn't so surprising, given that religion generally tends to wither and die if its worship becomes lazy and utilitarian, as the worship of the Catholic Church most certainly had in the decades after the Second Vatican Council. But Benedict never suggested that aesthetics could be a substitute for, as opposed to a component of belief. And more than any other recent pope, he recognised the magnitude of the threat to Christian belief posed by what he called the dictatorship of relativism, a relativism that some people would say has been positively embraced by his successor. Obviously, that's a danger that he didn't foresee. If he had, he wouldn't have resigned when he did. And I think over the next few weeks, we'll learn a lot more about the anguish caused to him by the chaos and malevolence of this pontificate. And it doesn't bode well for Francis, particularly after that disturbingly ill-judged funeral.
But Benedict would have been encouraged, I think, if he'd heard a sermon preached at a requiem mass for him by a young priest whose vocation he inspired. And I'm not going to name him, such is the vengefulness of the current regime. This priest reminded the congregation that Joseph Ratzinger had predicted for a long time that the church in places would shrink, that her social prestige would decline, she might have to retreat from her great cathedrals. And then he added, well, so what? Diocletian burnt down the basilica at Nicomedia next to his palace. The Donatists seized the great basilica of Serta built by Constantine. Henry VIII ravaged the great monasteries of England. The Huguenots destroyed the library of the Archabbey of Cluny, while the Hagia Sophia, the jewel of the Eastern Church, which Justinian, as he entered it, declared, Solomon, I have outdone thee, was in 2020 turned into a mosque. Yet the church has survived all these things. And the priest added, that admittedly sobering prediction of Ratzinger is most often quoted without its most important part, that the smaller communities of Catholics will be the beacons of hope for the church and the cells from which Christianity will re-emerge to heal a broken world. Many of those cells have already begun to appear, pockets of grace, holiness and renewal. And I think this priest is right, because I live opposite one of those places, my parish church, where there are no tridentine masses, no young fogies, and, thank God, no integralists, but where, during the pontificate of Benedict XVI, a process of restoration of the liturgy began, which really has borne fruit. So far as I know, and I don't want to get anyone into trouble, the parish wasn't interested in the so-called consultation for the synod on synodality, whose questions to the faithful were so obviously and embarrassingly rigged by a few activists. Instead, it achieved far more than any consultation by the so-called people of God by the simple gesture of literally opening its doors so that passers-by could see that it had introduced daily exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. And the magnetic effect of that has been quite remarkable. It remains part of the Church of Benedict in the sense that its restored worship owes a great deal, even if most parishioners aren't aware of it, to Joseph Ratzinger's great book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. And, I realise I'm in danger of pushing this dichotomy too far, it is, of course, part of the Church of Francis in that it recognises him as Pope and prays for him. But like most churches and religious communities exhibiting unexpected signs of vitality, it isn't interested in what you might call the Francis Project, a failed project characterised by creepy and confusing jargon emanating from the Vatican and self-appointed spokesmen, of which, and here I'm keeping my fingers crossed, I think we're going to be hearing rather less in the near future. To put it another way, Benedict's death and the rather unpleasant handling of his requiem by the Vatican made clearer than ever the damage done to the church by the discontinuity between two pontificates. Perhaps it marked the end of more than one era 